I'm David Bank, and from Impact Alpha, this is Agents of Impact, a series of interviews with changemakers in and out of impact investing. I would call it a market failure. When you know something is going wrong, when you can have both higher than we should have unemployment and labor shortages. That's Rachel Korberg, Executive Director of the Families and Workers Fund. I spoke with Rachel about labor shortages, unemployment, and essential workers in the time of COVID. Let's jump right into our conversation. Welcome, Rachel Korberg. Thanks for joining the Agents of Impact podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here with you. Rachel, you're the executive director of the Families and Workers Fund, and I'm delighted to have you here because I'm so interested in just what the status or situation of particularly workers, families too, of course, but um, 18 months into the pandemic, there's so many cross currents of what's happening with, with workers, essential workers, all workers, you know, unemployment down, but still high, uh, nobody wanting to go back to work and working conditions, you know, all, all, all up for grabs. So maybe you could just set a context for us of, you know, where are families and workers uh, 18 months into the pandemic? It's, it's such an important question. It's an unprecedented moment for sure. I mean, if we think back to 2020, 50% of the lowest paid workers were actually jobless at some point last year. I mean, we often forget that when we think about averages, which are a lot lower. But if you really drill down to the people who are bussing tables, cleaning hotel rooms, you know, harvesting crops, 50% of people in jobs like that lost it last year. Um, that's a trauma. I mean, that's a really profound dislocation. It's it's financial hardship for sure, but for anyone who's ever been employed, you know that that's a disruption to your health, to your family, to absolutely everything. So that's what so many workers and their families are emerging from now. Um, today, you know, we do, as you said, the unemployment picture is looking better every month when we see the data. Um, yet it's still higher than we would ideally like it to be and than it should be. Um, there are still millions out of work compared to pre-pandemic, and the numbers are especially concerning when we look at particular groups, um, for example, African-Americans. Yet we also have this experience of labor shortages, right? We've got employers saying, I can't find enough people who want to come work for me. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to offer all of these incentives to sweeten the deal, but I just can't hire enough people. So well, that's so a disconnect, do, right? That's, that's exactly what I've been mystified by is there's unemployment and then there's labor shortages. And how can those both exist at the same time? Yep. Um, I think it is a moment where we all really need to take a pause and think about how these two things can coexist. Um, I would call it a market failure. I mean, you know something is going wrong when you can have both higher than we should have unemployment and labor shortages. But I think if we had asked frontline workers and we had really looked at what their experience was like before the pandemic, we might not be so shocked. So, um, for example, we know that the federal minimum wage, $7.25 an hour, that it's, that actually will put you below the poverty line for a family of two, right? So on the one hand, we've said, this is the minimum floor. This is what you can pay people um, in an entry level or a lower wage job. And yet that puts people below the line that we've said, you know, this is the line, under which you're not going to be okay. You can't have the basics of a decent life. Um, so that's a reality we've been contending with. We've also seen um, in some industries 
there's a lot of challenges workers have been facing that aren't just about pay. The pandemic brought to light a lot of stories, for example, of sexual harassment in the restaurant industry. So, you know, put all of that together, the lack of federal paid leave and paid sick days, um, all of these challenges, essentially what you have are, you know, people who were laid off immediately in the pandemic may not have felt that sense of, you know, loyalty and care from their employers. And now they're saying, you know, do I risk my life to go sell tacos to people who are sexually harassing me for $7.25 an hour? <laughs> or as in the case of some restaurants, I'm $2.17 an hour because the tipped federal minimum wage is still that low. So, you know, this is what the market failure is about. It's really not about that there, there aren't enough people who want to work. It's that there aren't enough good quality jobs that people really want to go back to and have trust in. Um, and again, it's it's not just about pay. That's a key part of it, but it is about these other pieces too. Do workers really have a voice? Do they have access to good, affordable benefits? Is it you know a safe and healthy work environment? There is some sense that worker power in that environment has increased and that there's sort of a moment when both the appreciation, maybe lip service mostly, but at least at, lip, at least lip service um, to the value of, of essential workers and, and, and that workers can use this kind of labor shortage moment to drive some Im improvements. I imagine at some level the fund is trying to maybe grab that moment and make it make it stick. No, absolutely. I mean, we do see this as a once in a generation opening for change at the Families and Workers Fund. I think, yes, it is about worker voice and power. But I would say there's a couple of other sort of once in a generation forces, too. I mean, one is the amount of public dollars that are moving right now um, to see the money from the American Rescue Plan, um, from other legislation still to come moving towards states. That's huge. It's going to have a huge impact on labor markets and, and on communities and jobs. Um, the other thing I would point to is the conversation around equity. It is at a profoundly different place in business among employers than it was even a couple of years ago. Um, and I think, frankly, that intersects with this conversation around, you know, good jobs, how to really um, welcome workers back into these roles. So maybe let's take a step back and, and you can tell us a little bit about your background and about the background of the fund, how you got got it started. We, we covered a few weeks ago the launch of the fund. It's a funders collaborative. It includes the Ford Foundation, Schmidt Futures, and a bunch of others. So just tell us what you're up to with the fund. Yeah, exactly. So we are um, a donor collaborative. We're chaired by Ford Foundation's president, Darren Walker, and the CEO of Schmidt Futures, um, a philanthropic initiative, Eric and Wendy Schmidt, um, and that's Eric Braverman. And we're a coalition of about 20 philanthropies that are all jointly committed to building back a more equitable economy. Uh, we are diverse, right? We have some of the oldest philanthropies in the country, like the Rockefeller Foundation that is a member, and some of the newest philanthropists, like Jack Dorsey. Um, and we think that there's a lot of power in that diversity and the different. So you're on Jack Dorsey's famous spreadsheet. <laughs> yes, we were on the famous spreadsheet. <laughs> and so the and so the idea is is bring together f philanthropic dollars and then make grants um, uh, to what kinds of organizations? Exactly. So we make grants to um, nonprofit partners that might be working in workforce and social enterprise. We also directly build collaborations and partnerships with government and employers. And we're about a $51 million fund right now, but the assets that we bring are much beyond that because we also are this coalition 
of, of philanthropies. Um, and our two main goals, one is around advancing jobs that sustain and uplift people. And the other is around 21st century benefits, where we focus especially on unemployment insurance. Well, let's take those in turn. And actually, let's take the second one first, because unemployment insurance obviously played a huge role um, and continues to play a huge role, although I think some of the extended benefits have now run out. But in keeping many families afloat, on the other hand, the systems are invariably, you know, archaic and obsolete and the computers don't talk to each other and any number of problems that I'm sure you have analyzed. What is the state of unemployment insurance in America right now? The unemployment insurance system, unfortunately, has been you know underinvested in for decades. It's kind of the benefit that everybody loves to hate, right? You you don't ever want to have to need it, but you probably will at some point in your life, and if not you, you know one of your family members or, or your close friends. Um, and it's really part of having a vibrant economy where talent doesn't get left on the sidelines because anyone can be impacted by a market disruption. And the key is not having that throw you so far off your career path that you really can't get back. And, and so that's why we need UI. But as you said, um, the systems are really struggling. They're in need of repair and help. A number of states, their systems are actually coded in COBOL, which is a language that, you know, a lot of programmers and um that have been trained in the last couple of decades won't be fluent in. Um, in fact, a number of uh, people who work in COBOL had to come out of retirement to help states reprogram their systems for the new policies that were passed during the pandemic. So the system's not in good shape. Um, in fact, we supported um, through our grant funding a sprint that was a, um, at, the new, at New America and it was a collaboration between some former um, tech execs, some former um, high-level government officials, and actually a member of our advisory board. And we really wanted to look into exactly your question, like what went wrong, what went right, what's the state of play here? And there were some really interesting findings that, that point to um, both some troubling dynamics and some things that we could really fix. So for example, um, one of the findings was that in a number of states, last names that are too short, like especially if they're two characters, are being flagged as potential fraud. Um, but who does that fall hardest on? Woo, ho, I mean, predominantly Asian Americans who are applying. We saw similar things with um, people who apply with multiple claimants at one address. Um, and who is that most likely to affect? People living in homeless shelters, group care, um, multi-generational housing. So, you know, already people who are going to be experiencing the most vulnerability are facing these extraordinary barriers. What's exciting, though, is the American Rescue Plan put $2 billion towards not the benefits themselves, but the systems to implement them. So this is a huge shot to actually get this technology right, to do it in a human-centered way, to really design for the people who are most in need. Um, so we're hopeful, and, and we've actually been very excited to support some innovation in this space. What do you make of the claim that, you know, unemployment, you know, especially the extended and uh, supplemental unemployment insurance, you know, you know, is so rich now that it keeps people from wanting to go back to work? Is that is that a, a real effect or is that a canard of some sort? 
it is fully disproven in, in all of the evidence from, you know, sources as diverse as academic economists to JP Morgan Chase and then their data. It's one of those really unfortunate things that kind of feels true, but then you look at the data um, and it's just not. So all of the states that cut off the supplemental UIA, they did not see an increase in employment. It didn't lead to any changes. Um, and then interestingly, you know, UI had all these other positive effects too. Um, it was really a helpful boost to the macro economy uh, during some of the hardest days of COVID in 2020. So there are all these positive benefits. Um, we don't have the evidence that it leads to any ill effects. And frankly, there's this growing body of evidence on all forms of just cash benefits, on cash transfers. And what we see in general with the work on cash transfers is it actually encourages people to um, seek more upwardly mobile jobs and um, careers that are better fits for them and that are going to help them earn more over time. So I think we we really need to rethink this and kind of get out of this this false myth that um, unemployment insurance or you know generous benefits discourage work. It's just not the case. Actually, that leads to the to your other plank, which is good quality jobs, and and the and the and the argument has always been, you know, it's not just about you know job creation kind of in mass. It's actually about quality job creation, which includes good benefits, training opportunities, promotion opportunities, you know, leave policies, all those other th- kinds of things. Is there any real action on that as a result of the sort of pandemic disruption? You know, my hope is that in a year from now, we were going to say this was the golden era for advancing good jobs. Um, I think there's a lot of really exciting momentum here. I mean, first, we have to acknowledge that this this is going wrong, right? You can't be in this situation of higher than we should have unemployment and labor shortages without really thinking about what the quality of jobs are and, and what the issues might be for people. Um I also think, you know, many folks who in the past might not, might have been in really good paying jobs and, you know, might have been in more white collar roles have figured out what it's like to deal with not having schools shut down and not being able to have childcare, even if you can afford it. So there's an empathy building thing there for, you know, people who can't afford childcare, who have jobs that don't provide benefits. Um, so, so I'm hopeful about that. Um, but I think the thing I'm most hopeful about are these public dollars that are really flowing. I think government has a huge opportunity in the markets where it is um, a big consumer, basically, to use those taxpayer dollars to advance the types of upwardly mobile good jobs um, that grow the middle class that we want to see. So, you know, whether government is making contracts around roads and bridges or child care or disaster response, there's a huge opportunity there to make sure that those jobs, you know, pay a living wage, that they offer affordable and accessible benefits and that they're, you know, provide safety and security um, to the people who are in them. And, And that could be really huge. That could lead to some real transformation in these parts of the workforce. There's an opportunity there, but is that being is that opportunity being seized? Are there provisions in any of the bills to ensure that the jobs that are created are are good jobs? 
what there is, is some really exciting experiments. And I think um, in a year or two from now, we're going to see a lot more action in this space. I'll give you a great example. Um, Texas doesn't get enough credit sometimes. Um, it's really exciting to see innovation coming out of Texas, my wife's home state. So um, there's a, an initiative there that we've had the honor to support. It's called Better Builders. And um, this grew out very organically from a center that supports um, low-income immigrant workers in the construction industry. And they spent some time thinking through what does a good job really mean in our industry? You know, what, what is sort of fair pay and safety and security and et cetera? And then they took um, that set of definitions to the city government and said, hey, listen, we know that the construction industry is booming here. You have got a big backlog of applications for permits, for zoning. What if you prioritized reviewing those with consideration for this definition? You know, which one of these companies is really going to provide good jobs? Um, it solves a problem for government. It solves a problem for workers and it solves a problem for business because it's it's money when you're waiting for you know permits and your zoning application to be reviewed. Um, that was the kind of initial uh, spark of innovation. And now they've built out a number of different lines of business here, including certifying companies that want to meet these standards. So I'm actually really excited about this idea and this model of government and business and workers all coming together and figuring out how we create these win-wins. The win-wins are always obviously very appealing because they're win-wins, but the, but, and, and you, and you do think that there's a kind of model out there that says, Hey, if we actually offered better wages and better jobs, that would attract the workers and that would solve the worker shortages and the businesses would be able to grow, sell more things to more consumers make more money and it would really be a win-win um what are the i don't know i was going to ask about what are the obstacles to that but actually more important what are the you know sort of mechanisms that could get that flywheel going in terms of increasing pay well in terms of just making making business i suppose think that um this higher road kind of labor um, strategy is going to actually be a boon to business not just to workers yep um, there's a lot of good evidence and a growing number of companies that are adopting that approach. Um, I would definitely point to our friends at um, MIT Sloan School of Management, um, Professor Zainab Tan, who I'm sure you know well, and, and others there at the Good Jobs Institute that are showing, you know, when you have, when you make investments in human capital and have this kind of higher road operational model, that does lead to superior returns for your customers, for your investors, um, and certainly for the employees as well. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a really, you know, basic example we can all relate to. You know, when a piece of technology like breaks in your house and you call into the call center and you're like, oh, I've got to, got to get my printer fixed. And you're just dealing with someone who, you know, clearly doesn't know how to help you. And it's unclear, you know, what the chain of processes is that they follow versus when you call into a call center and it's someone who's like, here's the answer, here's what you do, and the problem is resolved quickly. Um, typically, the latter is what it means to invest in a good job strategy. It's someone who is confident about their job, they've been cross-trained, they're motivated and passionate about their work because they're being taken care of and they're there to take care of you as a customer. So to me, like that is the value add for companies. Um, and I would point to a number that are really leading the way 
on this good job strategy. Um, and it's not a sideshow. Like these are big companies, right? So Costco, in fact, they just recently announced that the lowest wage they will pay anyone is going to be $17 an hour. And their average wage is $24 an hour. Um, this is a company that has grown something like 27% year to date in, in their stock price. So doing really well. Um, there's a great coalition that the Financial Health Network and Just Capital and the Good Jobs Institute have just built. And Verizon and Chobani and PayPal are all committed to this type of a strategy. So um, I'm really optimistic. I think the case is getting increasingly clear. Um, and I think we're going to see more employers following this path. It does sort of provide a kind of um, object lesson or natural experiment of some sort for something that you know people have been talking about for a long time, which was that automation in particular, outsourcing and other things as well, but certainly automation was supposed to be coming and taking all of our jobs, including journalists, including lawyers, but also truck drivers and everybody else. And that, you know, you know, 40% of all jobs were at risk, you know, from from automation and there was going to be rampant unemployment as the robots took over. Um, now there's like they can't they can't find enough truck drivers. So so what so which is right? Are there going to be no more truck driving jobs, or do we need like lots and lots more truck drivers? I love this question. It's so true. If we went back and looked at the news headlines over the last few years, it really seemed like there was a robot apocalypse right about to happen, <laughs> that we were about to lose all of our jobs. And yet now the headlines are all about employers not being able to hire and this labor shortage. So it does feel like you know those of us who are in the future of workspace, and I include myself, got something really big wrong here. Um, you know, it's not that there isn't profound change happening due to technology. Um, it is. And, and there have been industries where jobs have been lost. There are places where jobs have been gained. And I think even more common, jobs have been changed. I mean, picture someone working in a grocery store. You're now almost a, a robot monitor and you're helping customers not get too annoyed at the robots and self-checkout, right? But it's not that we don't need that worker. It's that their job has changed. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, that is a real um, and important force in the labor market and one we need to keep grappling with and preparing for. On the other hand, I think we did focus on it too much. And I think that we did that sometimes at the expense of a lot of other dynamics that were playing out. And I think that's why we're being caught a little bit flat footed now with um, this labor shortage. Uh, I think if we had, you know, listened in all those conversations about robots to what was really most concerning to frontline workers? What was really most concerning to folks making, you know, $15 an hour or less? I think we would have heard a lot about not being able to make ends meet with the pay that you're getting, not being able to take, you know, sick days when your parent or your kid is sick and needs your help. Um, and frankly, not always feeling that you have the respect that you deserve um, on the job. And I think if we had been really centering what they were saying, this whole conversation around the future of work might have played out a lot differently. And the good part is when you are preparing to make jobs more resilient, whether it's robots, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's just a good old, you know, a company being pushed out of the market due to competition, that preparation is going to work in all of those settings. It's all really necessary. Um, and I think we need to not over-focus on just one threat and not forget threats like inequality and pandemics while we're doing that. It's so refreshing, Rachel, for someone to say, we, you know, we were wrong. It's, it's rare. You, you hear it so rarely. But just tell us a little bit of how you, how you got into this and how, the, and how the fund got started. 
So the fund got started in the spring of 2020. It's probably a time a lot of us don't want to remember. Um, I was working at the Ford Foundation at the time, and I will never forget, I got this phone call from um, a grantee partner of ours who um, supported low-income workers in the restaurant industry. And they told me that 90% of the workers that were members of their nonprofit uh, had been laid off in the last two weeks. I mean, it was apocalyptic. And then I had similar calls with partners that work in the hospitality industry, um, in agriculture. So it was very clear to me. Um, and, and I used to be a humanitarian aid worker. So I really have this rapid response kind of in my DNA. Um, it was very clear to me that this wasn't just going to be a public health and health crisis but it was also going to be a crisis of economic hardship and inequity. So we wanted to quickly spring into action. Um, at Ford, we reached out to our colleagues at Schmidt Futures. They were thinking along similar lines. We felt like if we could combine sort of Ford's focus on proximity to directly impacted communities and the social justice focus of that institution with Schmidt Futures, just really incredible technology expertise, um, civic tech, that that would be a hugely powerful combination. So we got together. Um, we were thrilled when a handful of other philanthropies also joined forces with us to build this out. Um, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, founder of Craigslist, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, the Kellogg Foundation, Morgan Stanley. And we all pooled um, what in 2020 was about $10 million. And we said, we're just going to get these resources to the people who are hardest hit and who we know might not be as well served by the social safety net. So disproportionately, you know, low-income people of color who had been laid off, low-income women and, and others in rural areas. Um, so that was our focus in 2020. But then I think we shifted from, from thinking, you know, this is a crisis to, yes, this is a crisis, but this is also a once-in-a-generation opportunity for change. You know, with this this greater interest and focus on frontline workers in the country um, with this interest in how do we build back better and have a more equitable recovery. It seemed like philanthropy really needed to surge and be a place to support innovation and leadership um, on a more equitable recovery. So we kind of proposed that to this coalition that had emerged and we were all just really aligned despite being such you know, diverse institutions. And we're now about a $51 million in growing fund. Um, and we've committed to a five-year timeline. Well, Rachel, I'm sure you are not going to lack for um, work to be done on for both workers and families. So um, you've got your work cut out for you. We're going to check back with you often and find out what you're up to and, and whether um, whether the we're seizing, indeed seizing this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So thank you, Rachel Korberg from the Family and Workers Fund. Um, and uh, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. That's going to do it for this episode of Agents of Impact. You can read more about Rachel Korberg and the Families and Workers Fund at impactalpha.com. Subscribers to Impact Alpha receive our daily email brief, including deal flow, job postings, and original features. Get full access to impactalpha.com, our Agents of Impact conference calls, and much more by going to impactalpha.com slash subscribe. Thanks again to Rachel and to our producer, Isaac Silk. I'm David Bank, editor and CEO of Impact Alpha. Until next time.